0: based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 14th, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Christian Catalini talks about what happens when early adopters of technology, those we sometimes see waiting in line for the news gizmo, maybe you're one of them, are held back from getting that technology early. Does it affect how the tech is disseminated when early adopters aren't allowed to get there first? And Katherine Matisik is here with a rundown of stories from the online news site. Now we have Katherine Matisik, an editor for our daily news site. She's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on the birth of metabolism. Most studies on the origin of life on planet Earth have focused on DNA and RNA, the heritable molecules that hold the recipe for proteins. But what about proteins? Their role in harnessing energy means they needed to be in the game of life early. But how and when did these types of enzymes arise? A new study suggests answers to both of these questions. Catherine, can you tell us a little bit more about the enzymes in question here?
1: So the enzymes that we're talking about power everything from respiration to photosynthesis to DNA repair, basically the whole of our metabolism, and the metabolisms of every living thing that's ever existed, at least that we know about. At the heart of most of these enzymes are clusters of iron and sulfur atoms, which help facilitate the electron transfer behind many biological processes. You can think of them as the raw ingredients for the chemistry of life.
0: So not a lot of the conditions were right for these molecules 4 billion years ago, but the ingredients were there? The ingredients were there, and they existed in the Earth's
1: crust and in primordial lakes and seas that dotted the surface of our young planet. They were probably most abundant in volcanic lakes and impact craters, where water moving through fractured rocks brought iron and other minerals to the surface. But there was one big problem. There wasn't much oxygen in the early atmosphere, which, in living organisms, powers the formation of these iron-sulfur clusters that we were talking about earlier. To find out how this reaction might have happened in Earth's primordial ooze, scientists mixed a brew of iron ions and sulfur-containing peptides, all in the absence of oxygen. But nothing happened until they turned
0: on the lights. (laughs) And by that, Sarah, I mean ultraviolet light. I was wondering if they literally just were like doing it in the dark and then they turned turn the light on and it started working. It, it certainly makes a good
1: narrative if you put it that way. Yeah. Um, but what was really cool was as soon as they turned those lights on, the compounds started reacting. The scientists described how they actually saw their concoction go from violet to red to after about three minutes, a deep brown color. And that indicated that the UV light was taking on the normal role of oxygen, oxidizing the iron into a form that could easily interact with the other compounds. At the same time, the UV light freed sulfur atoms from the peptides so they could combine to form the iron-sulfur clusters.
0: Okay. And there was a lot more UV light hitting the earth in those days, right? How about these primordial soups? Were they dark brown. Okay, we don't have a time machine, so
1: we don't know. Um, But what is true is at the time, our ozone layer, which currently protects us from UV radiation, simply didn't exist, thanks to the absence of oxygen. That meant we would have been exposed to UV light strong enough to power these reactions, say the scientists.
0: Okay, when I think of the beginnings of life on Earth, I usually think RNA maybe some DNA. And I'm wondering, could both of these things, RNA and these early clusters, have been around at the same time doing their own thing? That's the thought. Some scientists working on the experiment have
1: proposed a scenario in which all the basic chemicals for life, RNA, peptides, and these iron sulfur clusters, could have been floating around together in a water-filled impact crater. What remains to be seen is how they could have come together to carry out the other reactions necessary for life. And just to let you know, and our listeners know, the scientists don't say this is a watertight case. Showing that something can happen in the lab is very different from saying that it did happen
0: billions of years ago. Next up, we have a story on an unremarkable fossil telling us remarkable things. And here to share the information is Carolyn Gramling. She wrote the story, and happily, she agreed to sit down and tell us all about it. And Catherine may pipe in as well as we go. Okay, so first up, Carolyn, this is a fossilized mouse bird from 60-some million years ago. What's the big deal? I mean, birds have been around for a long time. Are we surprised to find
2: No, the bird itself is not the surprise. Um, Yes, birds have been around since the Mesozoic, um, which is the age of dinosaurs. But this particular bird um, was found in rocks that date to about 62 million years ago. And that is just a few million years after this giant mass extinction that killed off all the other dinosaurs Um, that happened at the end of the Cretaceous. And the fact that this bird was found in this age of rocks really is telling scientists something significant about how quickly birds diversified right after this extinction. So what specifically about this
0: fossil gives us
2: clues about
0: diversification? We knew birds were there. Is this a unique bird we weren't expecting to see, or does it have some features that are important?
2: Well, the main thing is that it's very its very rare to find fossils of birds um, this quickly after the extinction. Uh, mostly what scientists know about what happened to birds in the aftermath of that event comes from phylogenetic studies, looking at their evolutionary trees and sort of looking backwards to see how quickly we think they evolved.
0: Right. And that's by looking at their DNA as exactly. opposed to uh, fossil remnants.
2: Exactly. And so actually finding a fossil that, can, that is so well dated, mm-hmm. which is also pretty key, um, is a really big, big find for understanding how quickly they actually rebounded in the wake of that extinction.
0: So what about this fossil itself? What can we learn from that?
2: Well, the fossil itself is actually not particularly remarkable. It's, you know, it's a sort of a jumbled collection of bones. It's not, you know, a really beautiful fossil laid out on a slab. Um, but it is, there are enough characteristics there that they could identify it um, as being a mouse bird. Uh, but the main, the main thing that we can tell is that once we know it's a mouse bird, then they can sort of say, well, based on these phylogenetic studies, we know that certain lineages of birds evolved in a certain order. Um, and so they know once they found this one and can date it, they can say, well, these other ones evolved right around the same time or just before. And that's about nine major bird lineages that it all evolved within just a few million years after this mass extinction event. And that is pretty remarkable.
0: So that really compresses the, the timeline for when this big radiation of birds happened? Exactly. And how does that compare with what went on with mammals, which we also know had a super radiation at some point in
2: the past? Well, they think that mammals also rebounded pretty quickly as well. So we knew that about mammals. We've only recently learned that about frogs, mm-hmm. and so the fact that they're actually able to fill in this gap about birds is really significant. It was it was a long standing question, and people suspected it based on the DNA studies, but they just didn't have the fossil evidence. Okay,
0: one slightly unrelated question here: uh, Why do people keep calling birds tiny dinosaurs if? the dinos went extinct. I mean, where do you lie on this? Is it because, you know, the asteroid hit, killed all the dinosaurs, but birds had already split
2: from the dino lineage? Well, birds are, in fact, living dinosaurs. Okay, thank you. (laughs) They are the only living dinosaurs that, they are the only dinosaurs that survived the mass extinction. They did evolve sometime during the Mesozoic, and uh, there are a few major lineages that passed through that barrier. And then, as we know now, a number of major lineages rapidly diversified right in the aftermath. Okay, so when we say dinosaurs went extinct, we're always wrong. (laughs) Yes, when we say dinosaurs went extinct, there's always that caveat that's sometimes unspoken, except birds. All
0: right. Catherine, what do you want to ask? So
1: this is another naming question. I don't think it's nearly as introspective as Sarah's, but I will ask it anyway because I'm intensely curious.
2: Why do they call them mouse birds? This is actually a really good question because before I wrote about this study— I had no idea what a mouse bird was. And it turns out that they are actually just these small little birds. The only ones living today are currently in sub-Saharan Africa. And they just have very hair-like feathers. They're small. They're usually grayish or brownish. They're also very social. Um, And so they have acquired the name mouse birds.
0: Okay. Well, thanks, Carolyn. I'm going to turn back to Catherine for the last story that we're going to talk about. Last up, we have a story on reversing traumatic brain injury. Usually when someone gets a serious head injury, think car accident, getting really mashed in a football game, the focus is on controlling swelling and then a lot of physical therapy to follow. But this doesn't address what's going on with other important brain functions like learning and memory. What can we do for that if those are problems after a head injury, Catherine?
1: Sadly, we can't
0: do very much.
1: When somebody gets mashed, as you so elegantly put it, the damage can be permanent. Uh, If it's not, patients go through months and months, sometimes years of physical therapy to get back online. But there really isn't much that people can do at this point to bring their brain functions back online, other than rest. Now, a new drug
0: may be changing that. And what do we know about this drug? I think it's only been tested in mice. That is the first caveat. But it's been tested a
1: couple of times. In 2013, the compound was found to block something called an integrated stress response. That's when a brain injury throws protein synthesis in neurons out of whack, making long-term memory formation really hard. In mice, the compound, which is called ISRIB, boosted their memory. Fast forward a few years— And scientists decided to test the drug in mice with traumatic brain injuries, you know, so similar to the ones you were talking about, uh, essentially a mild concussion or contusion that you might get in a car crash. After four weeks of recovery time, the injured mice were trained to swim through a water maze with a hidden resting platform. Most mice get really good at this after a few tries, but the injured mice, they were stuck. It was like they couldn't lay down the memories of where they'd been. But after taking several doses of this ISRIB, those mice did just as well as the healthy ones. The same thing happened when they tested the mice with a different type of brain injury in a different kind of maze. One researcher called it a paradigm shift.
0: Another, uh, one of the authors, (laughs) called it magical. All right, well, do we know anything about the target of this drug, like what processes is affecting in the brain?
1: So scientists still aren't sure how the drug restores memory, but they say that it could work by jump-starting the protein synthesis pathways that stall out during the stress response I talked about earlier. And the other thing, of course, is right now nobody knows for sure whether or how this would even work in humans. But... Sort of the long term goal is to focus on vulnerable groups of people like soldiers returning from battle who are at much higher risk for traumatic brain injuries. Mm-hmm. Is
0: there anything else out there like this that has been shown to affect memory after such a, a, an insult? Nothing that I've
1: heard of. And this is in particular remarkable, according to the researchers, because it wasn't administered until a full month after the injury. And so you Usually the rule with brain injuries is you have to take care of any sort of immediate therapy within the first 24 to 48 hours. You know, so this long time scale is pretty impressive. The other thing that's really interesting is that in 2015, ISRIB was licensed to a little company that you may have heard of called Google. It's actually one of its spinoffs called Calico, which studies lifespan and the biology of aging. So who knows? Maybe one day you'll be able to call Google your second brain in more ways than just
0: one. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, What else is on the site this week?
1: We have a story about Antarctica's dramatically calving icebergs and a new study that tells you the single best way you can reduce your carbon footprint. Extra points if you can guess. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have stories on Trump's science policy and full coverage of spending bills for the DOE, the NIH, the NSF,
0: and NASA. Thanks again, Catherine, and thanks, Carolyn. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. Katherine Matisik is an editor for our online daily news site. Carolyn Gramling is the editor for the News and Brief section and a paleontology writer. I'm Sarah Crespi. Early adopters, those that take to new technologies like fish to water, seem to have become part of the technology ecosystem. Companies may rely on them to proselytize their products, troubleshoot them, and even help late adopters get up to speed. But what happens to a technology when early adopters are thwarted from early adoption? Christian Catalini is here to talk about an experiment in delayed distribution aimed at answering this question. Welcome, Christian. Thank you so much. So I I kind of hinted at what an early adopter is in my introduction. But is there a more standardized definition? And what do we know about them from research? Early
3: adopters typically have lower costs to adopting a specific technology. This may be related to their technological skills or what they've learned before or simply due to their inclination. And so these are often individuals that sort into a new technology first and tend to have positive effects on the diffusion of the technology later on. They may teach others how to use the technology. And and often they're kind of the ambassadors bringing the technology into the world.
0: And so research has been a little bit mixed, though, on why they play this role. What what makes a person do this, right?
3: Yeah. So the main challenge is that we never observe kind of what, what makes an individual an early adopter. You know, in one extreme case, you could imagine that you just happen to be there at the right time or be exposed towards the technology at a certain moment of time, and that transforms you into an early adopter, uh, not because of kind of your innate traits. Uh, on the other, there may be some characteristics of these individuals that are really unique
0: you wanted to see what happens if these early adopters don't get the chance to get there first. How might that affect, you know, the dissemination of a technology and its adoption by other people? So how did you manage to do this experimentally? You were able to kind of control the dissemination of a technology?
3: Yeah, so the what makes our setting interesting is that we were able to manipulate when you know different types of individuals would receive the technologies. One of the key challenges in studying innovation diffusion is that we only get to see kind of how the diffusion takes place mm-hmm. in, in the universe we have available, but we never observe a counterfactual diffusion. Uh, so we never know what would have happened if instead of this type of uh, individuals we would have seeded it with this different group. In the experimental design, we were able to randomize. And so 50% of our sample received their Bitcoin, in this case, right away. Uh, The other 50% had to wait for two weeks.
0: Okay, let's talk about what Bitcoin is and and how it got involved in this study real quick. What is Bitcoin and how would you give it to someone? How did you get it? And and what happens when someone gets a Bitcoin?
3: So Bitcoin is... um, the world-leading cryptocurrency uh, started actually many years ago, uh, around 2008-2009, as slowly being diffusing through through society. But in 2014, two of our students, uh, Dan Elitzer and Jeremy Rubin, decided to raise enough money from from our alumni to essentially give everybody hundred dollars in Bitcoin um, on the MIT campus. Hmm. And so that's kind of where the experiment started. Catherine Tucker, my co-author, and I uh, were interested in really studying. The, the diffusion and adoption of Bitcoin on the MIT setting. And we were also interested in making sure that, you know, even if every MIT student had cashed out the day after receiving their Bitcoin, we would have learned something from, from this experiment.
0: Right. And so you had two waves of release, but, but people knew whether they were in the early group or the late group.
3: No, that that was kind of a a key aspect of the experimental design. Everybody signed up. Uh, This was actually done in October. They had five days to sign up. And we didn't provide any information on when exactly different individuals would receive their Bitcoin. We just loosely mentioned that, you know, it would happen soon. Then in November, there was a first wave of students that received their Bitcoin. And we waited two weeks before we expanded it to their peers.
0: And one of the things you wanted to differentiate was how someone who was typically an early adopter would react to being in the first group or the second group. How are you able to pick out who would be a natural early adopter?
3: We, we were able to identify early adopters even before the technology was seeded. Students signed up in, in advance with us. And you know, the speed at which they registered for the wait list to receive their Bitcoin was kind of our early sign of the early adopters in this setting. So we do rely both on, on this wait list. Uh, in particular, we look at students that signed up within you know, the first 12 to uh, 24 hours after we released this. Uh, we ended up releasing the experiment at 8.40 p.m. And so many of the students that were more eager to get their Bitcoin worked through the registration process practically overnight. Hmm. We corroborate, of course, this kind of reveal preference with survey metrics, too. And in our data, people that register first are way more likely to be top quarters, to you know have developed an app in the iOS or Android store, to place more trust maybe in startups than financial institution for their financial transactions. So they have all the features that you would expect early adopters uh, of a cryptocurrency to have.
0: What differences did you see in the behavior after everybody got their Bitcoin between those who were naturally early adopters that got stuff first and those that had to wait the uh, extra two weeks.
3: So our first surprise was that uh, we noticed that, you know, individuals that, by all accounts, should have been the ones to kind of help others and support the ecosystem in in using Bitcoin. When delayed, these natural early adopters, essentially, under the delay, they were way more likely to abandon Bitcoin, (laughs) whereas most individuals were holding on and kind of exploring what this technology could be worth into the future. Even as of today, about 50% of our students, so the majority is actually still holding onto their Bitcoin, about 18% of early adopters that were delayed abandoned Bitcoin right away.
0: So they were basically, if I'm not first, I'm not interested? Is that kind of their attitude?
3: So our original idea was kind of different. We imagined that by delaying early adopters, we had kind of unraveled uh, the optimal diffusion process. You could imagine that, you know, when their peers receive them, if they don't have this technology gatekeepers or kind of reference individuals available to learn how to use Bitcoin, maybe they they would abandon themselves. And mm-hmm. so by the time... The early adopters would have received their Bitcoin, kind of the process that completely unraveled. Hmm. But as we started digging more into the data, the mechanism was more complex. For example, we noticed that the effect was present when uh, students were kind of in environments that are highly socialized, like in dorms, but wasn't present off campus. Moreover, the more tightly clustered these groups were, think about a small dorms or even people living on the same dorm and floor, the more the effect was present, the more we were seeing these early adopters kind of abandoning when delayed. Interestingly, the more rare an early adopter was within her or his peer group, the more they were likely to abandon. So this really moved us towards more identity-based explanations. So it seems that there's something about the identity of these individuals that really rests on being first to adopt. Maybe they derive you know, some consumption utility from from having exclusive access and playing and exploring the technology before everybody else. Or maybe even their reputation relies on the fact that they're kind of the first ones to adopt. And so everybody in their peer group looks up to them for their technology decisions. Hmm. Uh, And that was kind of the, the more surprising part of the story.
0: Did you see an influence? So if the early adopters were delayed and they weren't around to help people who maybe wouldn't naturally take up technology this quickly, was there an effect on the dissemination? Was there a negative impact as expected?
3: That's exactly what we look at next. Uh, first, we looked at, you know, simple disadoption. Our experiment is kind of the opposite of how you usually think about adoption in society where a new technology is introduced and suddenly people slowly start adopting because we were airdropping the Bitcoins on, on practically everyone uh, within, within a few weeks. And so the first thing we look at, what's the speed of disadoption? What's the speed at which some of the students take their Bitcoin and convert them back to US dollars? And the first thing we noticed uh, was that in dorms or social clusters, where an above the median share of these natural early adopters was delayed, this adoption was substantially faster. So it was dropping at a much faster rate than in the other dorms. When we look at about 200 days into the experiment, so this is way, way later than, you know, the initial distribution phase, Dorms that had kind of the optimal seeding process where, you know, you gave the technology first to the early adopters and, and, and they were kind of able to get this exclusivity period were 45 percent more active on the technology hmm. than other dorms. So that initial uh, seating a- had major repercussions on the ultimate effects we observed
0: what's what could say a technology company do with this information this this what seems to be the, the key importance of early adopters actually having early access to technology
3: yeah so the literature on early adopters always highlights kind of the positive effects of this <laughs> particular class of individuals and to some extent that is true these individuals help others they provide feedback to companies they help you refine your product they become brand ambassadors and they kind of push the product forward towards the diffusion Curve, but through our randomization, what we were really able to to observe is that, of course, this comes with a cost. There's always trade-offs, and so it seems that at least in environments that are socialized and for technologies that do have this kind of social component, giving early adopters this exclusivity period may be very important. Often companies do constrain initial distribution for technology reasons or for logistical reasons, right? They only have so much supply of a certain product, mm-hmm. and so maybe naturally people line up in a store or wake up in the middle of the night to order, you know, a new product uh, on a website. And in, in in that sense, it's almost like as if early adopters would reveal themselves to you, and you're doing kind of the optimal seating uh, without too much effort. But in other situations, companies may not know who their natural early adopters are. And so I think what the study highlights is two things. First, that it's important to be able to identify them uh, in advance if possible, because, you know, they, they do care about exclusivity. And second, that there is actually a natural order to, to the diffusion and introduction of new technologies. And it seems to, to ask essentially to give that technology first to the individuals that care the most about it.
0: Okay, Christian, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you very much. Christian Catalini and Katherine Tucker write about early adopters in this week's issue of Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. Or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps. Or... Listen to us on the Science Site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting Aas.org/join. That's aaas.org/join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by science careers.